Welcome to the 16th episode of our Religion and Praxis podcast. And today we have with us Professor Erin Wilson, who is Professor and Chair of Politics and Religion and Wise Dean and Director of Education in the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Groningen, uh, Netherlands. So she is also co-chair and uh, the Academic Advisory Council for the Transatlantic Partnership Network on Religion and Diplomacy. Erin is a renowned expert in the field of religion and international relations and has made significant contribution to our understanding of the place of religion in contemporary situations of conflict, violence, and security. We are thrilled to have Erin with us today to discuss her work and insights on the intersection of religion and international relations and how this field has evolved over the years. We're also excited to learn about her new book, Religion and World Politics, Connecting Theory and Practice, which is, by the way, an open access book, and all of you can access that for free, and offers a critical and intersectional analytical framework for understanding religion in international relations. So, Erin, thank you for joining us today, and let's dive right into the conversation. Thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, what an introduction, like no pressure or anything. <laughs> So what is the primary goal of the book and who is its target audience? So this book, um, I wrote it in part out of a a little bit of a sense of frustration with how conversations around uh, religion and world politics have evolved or not evolved, as the case may be, in the time that I have been working on this topic, which is roughly 20 years now. and and I, I noticed this also with my work with the policy network, um, with with students, with people in civil society from um, you know lots of diverse backgrounds. We still are having these same conversations. Like, is religion good or bad? Uh, is it a positive influence or a negative influence in world politics? Um, does it drive conflict? Is it irrelevant to conflict? And um, coming from someone who works. Uh, my background is international relations, but I work in a religious studies and theology faculty. And so I kind of bring, I, I work across a lot of different disciplines. Um, these, com- these kinds of questions that we're asking, they, they just, they're, they're really the wrong questions. Um, because they, they work from a fundamental assumption that, that religion is something that we can clearly identify and label and, um, define. And that it essentially looks the same wherever you go. And so it's, it's an idea about religion that is very much informed by the kind of European enlightenment experience. And it's an understanding of religion that just doesn't make sense in a lot of the places that we as international relations scholars or, um, sociologists of religion like yourself or anthropologists of religion, religious studies scholars in general, where we're working. And also for people working in uh, civil society and and foreign policy, working with these kinds of uh, very reductionist, simplistic assumptions about what religion is, 
leads to some fundamental errors. And so that's basically what, what the book is trying to do is to say, well, here, here is what is wrong with how most of us currently approach religion. Here is why these questions don't get us very far. And here are the questions that we should be asking. And here is how that enriches our analysis, enriches our understanding of key areas of international politics and foreign policy. And here's how it can apply to very practical uh, real-world case studies and examples. And so the book starts with the, the, the first chapter talks about what's wrong with kind of the, the mainstream approaches. And then the second chapter presents the, the sort of critical intersectional framework or um, the, the lived religion framework would have been a much better way of framing it, but I didn't come up with that until after the book was published. You know, So I'll save that for the second edition. Um, and basically it's, but there's, there's sort of three things about it. So the first is that um, we always start with, a focus on religion when we ask these questions and we shouldn't be we should be starting with a focus on context because religion changes depending on the context so rather than asking questions about religion we ask questions about the context what does religion mean in this specific context on this specific issue then the second thing that we need to do is look at religion itself this term religion itself like what do we actually mean when we use this term religion and uh, what it suggests is that we shouldn't talk about religion we should break it we need to break it down into these very kind of um uh, more more specific names and labels and so it, it uses these categories of actors narratives and identities um and the idea well and and then it kind of breaks down these different um like what what each of these different categories refers to so um and then it, it, so then the, there's three other chapters in the book that look at, um, different case studies of sort of what might be understood as sort of core areas of international politics. So security, violence and conflict, um, and then, uh, development and humanitarianism and then human rights, um, and international law. Oh, wonderful in, in uh, teaser for our further discussion. So what are prevailing approaches to the question of religion's role and influence in, in world politics? Would you give us your take on what is wrong with the field? Yeah, yeah. So um, what I talk about in the book, and this this is nothing new, like this is stuff that's been canvassed by people like Beth shackman Heard and Jose Casanova and um, uh, Talal Assad. Um, but basically... There's these kinds of what what the book does is sort of present these four different positions and attitudes towards religion in world politics, but I think also more generally in terms of religion's place and influence in society tend to focus on on two things. And one is um, the type of influence that religion has, so whether it's mostly positive or mostly negative. And then, um, how significant that influence is. So whether it's central or marginal. And you can kind of picture this. And in the book, there's a diagram that presents this as, um, a, a matrix that sort of has these different positions of sort of po- religion, seeing religion as positive central. And, you know, so religion is a, a good influence on society and it's fundamental to, understanding world politics and then there's sort of the positive marginal like religion can have be a good influence but it's not necessarily like you know we don't necessarily need to um 
we don't necessarily need to consider it all the time. And then you have uh, negative central, which is religion is the cause of all the problems in the world and we should get rid of it. And that can, um, and then the, the, the other one is, um, negative marginal, which is, yeah, religion is, is a negative influence. It's a bad influence. Um, but you know, it's not really all that relevant and it's probably eventually going to die out. And I, I, what I discuss in the book is that most of these are related to various different types of secularism. And, um, so that draws on a lot of the, the scholarship, existing scholarship on secularism that's out there. And, um, the, the and and also talks about various different archetypes. So, um, like laicite is is an archetype of the the negative central perspective. Um, what uh, and then there's other variations that like Dan Philpot talks about positive secularisms, neutral and and then hostile secularisms, um, and all of these kind of map onto these four different positions. Um, and so then there's, there's a, a fifth position that has emerged in kind of the, the post 9-11 environment, which, um, Beth Heard talked about in her 2015 book on the, the two faces of faith, um, or what, um, Robert Orsi has talked about as good religion, bad religion. And it's this idea that, um, you know, religion can be a positive influence, but we as policymakers or as academics or civil society, we have to fashion it and shape it and encourage the positive aspects of it and minimise the negative aspects of it. Um, and they tend to be the, the sort of main approaches, but every single one of them begins with an idea that religion is something and is underpinned by notions that religion we can clearly identify what religion is that um all religions kind of look the same in different places that um religion is can be separated from other aspects of human activity that it should be um that it's the cause of kind of main disagreements and things um and there's very little to no recognition that religion is actually part of the human experience it's entangled in identity in politics in history in economics in culture and trying to extract it from these contexts and look at it as something that sort of floats above is a very um it's a very impoverished form of analysis and what we actually need to do is embrace the complexity and find ways to make sense of that complexity in in context. Um, and next one, what I'm interested in is if you can explain the the critical intersectional framework which is proposed in the book, and and its significance in understanding religion in international relations. So, is is there some macro sociological kind of um, features which of this intersectionality? And another sub question to that will be an interesting, uh, very kind of. Um, a grounded um, analysis of uh, particular cases, which the book actually has in, in other chapters, is this obsession with jihadism and or Islamist extremism in international security frameworks, which contributed to the rise of far right extremism. Can, can, can you can you can you elaborate this very interesting dynamics, which is discussed in the book? So the um, the critical intersectional framework. So one of the so i would classify myself as a what what's referred to as a critical scholar which is um and critical scholarship like that means various different things to various different people but essentially critical scholars don't take the world as it is they they seek to understand um 
they, they, they question, they question everything and they will point out the kind of, um, logical inconsistencies that exist within, um, a lot of the different frameworks that, that govern the way that we approach international politics. Um, one of my, one of the things that, that makes me slightly uncomfortable with critical scholarship and that has, um, made me somewhat uncomfortable with the critique of secularism is that often critical scholarship points out what's wrong but doesn't necessarily provide us with a way forward like what do we do instead and so that was in part where um I coupled this uh critical uh these critical approaches with intersectional approaches precisely because religion has to be understood in its context and we have to understand the way religion intersects with issues of gender race class um history uh colonial relationships uh power relationships within international politics because all of it shapes and is shaped by different uh dynamics within religious communities religious traditions how people choose to identify or not identify as the case may be in terms of labels that we understand as religion so that was um why i wanted to use the the um why I've, I've drawn on these different theoretical influences to develop this, uh, analytical framework. And, um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe this sounds a bit, um, uh, bit, I, I don't know, a bit shallow or maybe I'm not quite sure if that's the word, but I'm actually quite proud of the diagrams that are in the book. Um, cause I think they help to, to really visualize what is meant by all of this. And th- so, you know, the, the book, uh, by context, what, what I mean is not just about the physical place that we're looking at, but also the discursive space that we're talking about. So it isn't just about, um, you know, there's case studies in the book of, uh, Myanmar, Iraq, um, the rise of, uh, far, far right extremism in Europe. It's not just about those physical places. It's also about the discursive space of, Extreme, countering violent extremism, for example, or the discursive space of development. So when we talk about context, those spatial and discursive elements are equally important. And then within that, we have to look at how this, our, our understanding of what religion is into, or, or the understanding of religion that exists within those spatial and discursive, um, areas intersects with history, uh, geography, climate, um, gender issues, race issues, um, politics, power relationships, etc. Um, and then looking very specifically at what, what is, what is the meaning of religion for people in those spaces and how is that deployed, um, by different actors in different settings? Um, so does that, does that kind of answer the question on? Yes, the- absolutely. Intersectionality. Okay, cool. And so then your other question was about, um, this, the kind of, uh, focus bordering on obsession with, yeah. uh, is Islamist extremism that we've seen, particularly in the, in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, and what, one of the reasons, it, so I thought, I thought long and hard about the different cases that I included in the book. And one of the reasons that I wanted to include a study on far right extremism is because this is, this is a, an issue that has, that should have been on our radar for much longer than it has been. So it's, it's become something that we're much more aware of. And by we, I mean 
people working in the policy sector um, and also I think within the broader um, international relations community at any rate. Um, but the reason we kind of missed this was because there was this obsessive focus on Islamist extremism, religious extremism broadly speaking, but more fundamentally it was it was Islamist extremism that and one of the things that that I discuss in the book, and here I'm drawing on the work of uh, John Esposito, who um, with uh, he co-authored a, a study in 2019 on um, the rise of far-right extremism. And, and what they point out in this study is that this focus on Islamist extremism actually drove or contributed to the rise of far-right extremism because it positioned Islamist extremism as an, and, and by association Islam as fundamentally opposed to the kind of the, the culture of and the politics of the Euro-American context. And that contributed to this rise in almost vigilantism uh, towards Islamist extremism that has resulted in far-right extremism, which is often connected with um, Christian nationalism, or, or at the very least, this this idea of having to defend Christian cultural heritage and protect it against the influence of Islam and Islamist extremism. But this is something that I that you would know much more about than I do because um, of where you are at Lund University. So maybe I should shut up and let you actually say something about this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, another issue which I think is. Unlike many other books I read on the subject, which has a very interesting um, approach to policy, and I think that's very also distinguished um, that distinguishes your book from other books. Um, how can we, or how can you explain some of the steps that can be taken in the policy making and and practice to incorporate a critical perspective on religion in the in the IR? How does okay? How does let's say it this way? How can scholars, policymakers, and practitioners continue to improve and evolve their analysis and approach to religion in international relations in the future? And how can those approaches be implemented on the policy level? Yeah, yeah. So um, the first thing is, so I'm, as you mentioned in the introduction, that I work with um, a, a network of policymakers who work, they're specifically focused on religion and foreign policy. And one of the, the kind of, one of the things that we do with this network is ask them, you know, what are the issues or, or topics or regions that are of interest to you? So we're very much focused on what's on the agenda. What are the things that are coming up? And it's not about saying, okay, religion matters in every context because religion isn't necessarily the most important thing. And this is something that um, Peter Mandeville has talked about as, as right-sizing religion. In in the past, there's been a tendency to either overemphasize or underemphasize the role of religion in, um, in foreign policy and in uh, world politics more generally. And this is about normalizing religion. So we need to get rid of the, the kind of moral panic that sometimes emerges in um, policy policy se- the policy sector around whether we engage with religious actors or not, whether we engage with questions of religion or not. Religion is there. It's part of the fabric and therefore we should. So as scholars, uh, policymakers, people in civil society, we need to understand religion. But what that means isn't just you know, there's been this tendency towards sort of um, building religious literacy and doing these sort of 
World Religions 101 courses. And that, um, in some ways that risks that that's potentially more damaging um, than just not doing anything because then you you end up with people having very limited sort of basic generic knowledge about the five quote unquote five major world religions going into uh, spaces where and and thinking they know what they need to know and then making these fundamental errors. What we need to be doing is going okay. This is where I am. This is the, the topic that I'm working on. Or so, you know, a, a policymaker gets deployed, so a diplomat gets deployed to, um, to Iraq, for example, rather than going in there and saying, okay, you know, I, you know, I know all about the five pillars of Islam. I know there's Sunni Shia, you know, so I'm, I'm good. Like they go into a situation and say, okay, what is the religious landscape within Iraq? Who are kind of the, the, the key players, the key actors? Um, and, and being willing to learn from people in those spaces and places. So there's a degree of, of humility that's required and an acknowledgement that we don't know everything. We can't know everything. And then a willingness to learn from the people who actually know the landscape, who live there. Um, and, staying out of some of the local politics and the local relationships um, because we potentially risk making things worse when we as outsiders try to intervene. Um, so that's it, the kind of fundamental attitude or approach for policymakers is understand the context that you're in, understand what religion means in that context, work with local actors on the ground. And the, the, in the very last chapter, in the conclusion to the book, there, I have a sort of set out some steps for policymakers and civil society practitioners that, um, you know, what, what can we do? So that, that's something that, um, we can, we can also discuss further if you like. And of, of course, that will be definitely good for the conclusive conclusion part, but another, issue i mean which which the book i think is really brilliant in is to kind of <clears throat> examining why this whole overlooking of far right extremists has happened and the way in which you kind of kind of process tracing this so why have politicians security analysts and scholars and policymakers overlooked far right extremism as a security threat um i mean there's a lot of people who have commented on this and i think one of the reasons is there's this there's this tendency so so is what I've already discussed, which is the overemphasis on Islam and the focus on Islam. The other, I think, is that far-right extremism was often um, sort of seen as or, or categorised as these kind of lone wolf actors, um, whereas Islamist extremism was was never really approached in that way. It was always very much seen as a sort of broader um ideological battle part of an ideological battle so we're often in some cases it wasn't it was lone wolves or or people acting out of their own particular initiative um and i don't think and and i think with far-right extremism there was there was not that um yeah it was often just seen as as kind of uh the people on on the fringe um and then i think the other part of this is this very kind of um, almost arrogant assumption that these kind of issues don't happen where we are. Like it's not that we as enlightened Euro-Americans, 
this is not something, this is not a problem that we have to deal with. This is not something that occurs in our societies. This is something that happens over there, or it's something that comes up amongst people who don't necessarily quote unquote belong where we are. And I think that was also one of the reasons why far right extremism was just not really regarded as, as much of a, a security threat or not given enough resources or attention. Um, so it's a combination of factors, but I do think this, um, this power imbalance between these different parts of the world plays a role in how we understand the relationship of religion to these different, um, aspects and, and the significance that we grant to these different phenomena. Um, for the listeners, the chapter is very rich in case comparison. And, um, I would, I would use the benefit of having this direct access to you, Erin, today. So how do religious actors play a role in promoting Buddhist nationalism in Myanmar? And if you can compare that to the, how politics and ethnicity and religious identity being entangled in the history of Iraq. I mean, give us a very brief, um, kind of comparative between the two. So for the listeners to kind of see this perspective. And this is very, again, open access book. You can access it and it's out there, but, um, uh, no quick fixes here, but just a kind of a general you know, framework from the author. Yeah. And I, I, like, I think that that's a really important thing. Often what policymakers and sometimes what we as scholars are looking for are quick fixes. And I also see this, um, in, in some areas within civil society as well, which is partly donor driven, but we're looking for, you know, down and dirty, very quick kind of, okay, how do we fix this? How do we solve this? Um, and exactly as you say, Tonike, there are no quick fixes. A lot of the issues that we see in these areas have arisen over centuries and they're connected to um, injustices and inequalities that have deep historical roots. And Myanmar and Iraq are cases in point. So um, I, and I, I talk about this in the book as well, but one of the reasons I wanted to include Myanmar is because of the very strong role of Buddhist nationalism there. And often uh, in European and American contexts and these quote-unquote quote Western contexts, we have this assumption that Buddhism is a very peaceful religion. I get this from my students a lot, like Buddhism is so peaceful. Um, and yet in in the Myanmar context, Buddhism is it can, can manifest in incredibly violent um, behaviours and was a significant part of the violence against the Rohingya community. But Buddhist nationalism has, um, like its roots in, in the Myanmar context are connected to the, um, the struggle against colonialism. And so Buddhist nationalism arose in part as a way to exert a very specific, um, locally embedded sense of national identity against that of the colonizers. Um, and so it began as a form of resistance in, in some respects. Um, and then, but, but what has happened in, uh, is that that emphasis on Buddhist nationalism has contributed to a situation where other forms of identity are then positioned as, um, as, as outsiders. And this is very much the case with the Rohingya community that, so, um, a lot of the Rohingya community um, there is a perception that many within the Rohingya community were brought over by the colonial powers from India, so the British from India. And so therefore then they're not actually uh, indigenous to Myanmar and should should leave. this is this is part of the argument. Um, and that's not necessarily historically accurate, but and and in fact, the Rohingya community, there are 
long historical links to to the place where they are, um, and that uh, Islam is is uh, endemic to to the region or is is part of the region. But the Buddhist nationalism is very um, yeah. There's this very strong emphasis on purity within um, within Buddhist nationalism, and part of the conflict between Aung San Suu Kyi and um, uh, the the um, the army within Myanmar is uh, around, has manifested in this uh, discussion about who offers the better protection for the purity of the Buddhist nation. And so uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's um, actions towards the Rohingya community have been interpreted by some scholars as um, her trying to exert her um, authority, her position as someone who uh, is able to protect the purity of the Buddhist nation, albeit that it fundamentally undermined her credentials as a champion for democracy and inclusive politics uh, in, on the global stage. Another question which actually comes to my hand is that uh, the challenges and generally like the one-fit-all approach, the problem of those one-fit-all yeah. approaches. And yeah. So would you guide us through what are the challenges and limitations of promoting freedom of religion or belief as a method of reducing inter-religious inter conflicts? And you discussed that in Iraq. And in general, what's your, your take on this kind of one-fits-all approaches? Yeah, I mean, there, there's several problems with um, the promotion of FORB um, as a, a means to reduce inter-religious conflict and inter-religious tensions. One of those that is the fundamental question of what counts as religion. And so one of the examples I talk about in the book is the, the situation in, in Pakistan, um, where, um, the community in Pakistan, uh, there's a, the, the group with a minority community that is excluded from, um, participating in national politics. Um, yeah, so the, one of the cases that I talk about in the book is the situation of the Ahmadiyya in, in Pakistan. Um, and the Ahmadiyya are a minority community, not only in Pakistan, they, they, there's a, a diaspora a community globally, um, but they follow the teachings of a man called Ghulam, Ghulam Ahmad. Um, and he, um, is seen as a prophet who came after Muhammad. Um, but in Pakistan, this is, uh, the Ahmadiyya are not considered to be part of the, the broader Muslim community. They consider themselves to be part of this, but, uh, the, the majority Muslim community in Pakistan don't consider them to be part of it. And so they exclude, they have, uh, you know, they have a clause in, um, the constitution. Well, I think it was, uh, revised. Um, in law, so it wasn't in the original constitution, but it was uh, revised that um, if someone wanted to um, hold the office of uh, prime minister, then they had to swear an oath, not only that they're Muslim, but that they believe that Muhammad was the last of the prophets. And so that um, it practically excludes the Ahmadiyya from being, or it forces the Ahmadiyya to um, to violate their own beliefs. Um, and so promoting the right to freedom of religion or belief for the Ahmadiyya in Pakistan doesn't necessarily work. And, um, I want to give a shout out to the work of Matthew Nelson on this because he's done a lot of really fantastic research on this and a wonderful article that he's published where you can read in detail about this. 
So the the book, my my book is very much a, a sort of introduction to a lot of um, different cases, and I draw on the work, the the more detailed work of a number of really wonderful scholars to do it. So um, use my book to kind of as the the entry point, and then go and check out all of these other amazing people to get more details on um, on what's actually going on. And uh, um, it's so particularly on on the the limitations of Forbes. So some other wonderful scholars, Beth Head, I've mentioned before, but uh, also the work of the late Saba Mahmoud. She's written about this, um, about the the Copts, the situation of the Copts in Egypt, um, and the the limitations of promoting Forbes in that context for protecting the rights of the Copts. And one of the, I mean, some of the other problems that I talk about in the book is the the connection with the language of human rights. Um, you know, human rights, I was in a meeting, this was a while ago, I had um, a, a woman from, um, I think it was, she was from Amnesty International and she was talking about as human rights as being non-political and as as in like human rights are settled. But human rights are anything if non-political and they're anything if settled. Um, they're constantly debated and who has access to those rights, how they're interpreted, how they're applied. and this is also connected to the politics of colonialism and human rights and the right to forb in particular, human rights in general and the right to forb in particular are often seen as ways for dominant global powers to exert their influence in former colonies or in countries that are, that are less powerful on the stage. And we have to understand these dynamics because we, and we have to be sensitive to them when we're trying to to not. I don't want to. I don't want to use the language of rights there. But when we're trying to work with people who are marginalised or excluded, whose dignity is being violated, and the reason I don't want to use the language of rights is because it can be so contested in some of these places. But we have to be sensitive to this. Otherwise, we're just going to make the problem worse. If we go into a context, I talk about this uh, building on some research around Indonesia and India that we've done as well. But if we go into a context where the language of rights is something that is fundamentally questioned or that provokes ire or antagonism, that's going to do that's not going to do anything positive for protecting the the dignity and security of communities and in some cases it may actually be more harmful than than helpful so this is why context is so important and why understanding not only the the physical um context but also the discursive context matters so much in relation to some of these issues because in it really can be matters of life and death in when we start looking at at some places and and for some minorities indeed and, and as, as you rightly pointed out in the book the diversity and heterogeneity of religious actors is extremely important to recognize and and recognize this both on the level of policy but also on the level of practice and uh, that's kind of the very very um, strong conclusion and also you mentioned Beth so for our listeners uh, we have uh, I had a podcast with uh, Elizabeth uh, Shackman heard on the 10th episode and we were on the same panel on the 14th episode in case you want to catch up and also Jose Casanova was mentioned he was our guest on our second episode in case you want to um, and also on the special issue on, on Ukraine, in case you want to catch up with um, with Elizabeth Chapman Hurd and uh, Jose Casanova. So um, I would conclude with the recommendations, like recommendations which you would give to the policymakers. And uh, then we're pretty much done with our interview. 
recommendations, both on the policy level, on, on the level of approaching religion and international relations. Um, what's your take on that? Um, well, I'm, I'm probably going to sound a bit like I'm repeating myself, but so I talked in the beginning about this, um, you know, these ideas around is religion positive or negative and, um, but what we really need to do is to move away from these sort of normative value judgments around religion. We can have our own personal opinions about the value of religion, its value for our own lives, its value for you know, the lives of people around us. But if you are in a community or in a country where religion is plays a significant role, where it shapes the way people think and the way that they engage with the world around them, then it's not our place to to judge whether that's positive or negative. Our job is just go is to understand what's going on. It's like, okay, this is here. It plays a role. What does it mean? How do we work with this dynamic rather than trying to fight it? And there's there's other examples in the book around um, work that's been done on climate change where um, you see people, so, so scientists and policymakers going into co- highly religious communities and using scientific language to talk to them about climate change. And it either has very little impact or it creates the sense of fear and disempowerment in the communities and doesn't really help to promote any kind of action on climate change. So, and instead, engaging with the way that people understand the world in terms of their, their religious beliefs and structures is a much more productive way of working with communities on issues like climate change or gender equality. Um, so that's, that's one thing is to, to really fight against the urge to have any kind of normative judgment about the value of religion. Um, another one is that we, t- we have a bit of a tendency to go to the same people and the same institutions when we talk about engaging with religious actors. And often those are the established religious institutions and the, the kind of officially recognized religious leaders. But again, when you're at the community level or, or the, the kind of grassroots lived religion level, those institutions and those national leaders or institutional leaders matter very little. And it's the people on the ground in the local communities who we really need to be working with and engaging with. So we have to be a bit more, um, it could be a little bit less lazy in terms of the people that we consult and that we engage with on this. Um, we need to make sure that we go, we, we pay attention to religious traditions beyond just Christianity and Islam in policy making and practice. Often when you hear the word, well, and in scholarship as well, often when we talk about religion in international relations, it's just a shorthand for Christianity or Islam. And really, and again, this is something that I really try to emphasize in the book, but engage with a lot of different traditions, um, that all kind of fall under this, this category of religion, um, to, to demonstrate the immense diversity that is out there and that we really need to be much more nuanced and detailed. And, um, yeah, again, just be a bit more careful in terms of the way that we talk about this, this, this topic. Um, we also need to be really conscious of language. So I've already talked about um, the different connotations that words like human rights can have in different contexts, but even just words like religion or secular, they don't mean the same thing 
outside of your American context. And, and, you know, let's be honest, they don't necessarily mean the same thing even within Europe, North America and, and Euro American influenced contexts. So we have to be a lot more, again, just, you know, what does religion mean in, in the context that I'm interested in researching? What does secularism mean in that context or, or in the context where I'm working as a policymaker or as a civil society practitioner? Not what am I, how do I understand it or how does this scholar understand it, but what does it mean on the ground in practice in these communities and on these specific issues? Um, we also have to acknowledge historical inequalities and the power imbalances that continue to affect uh, world politics um, because we might think that it's done and dusted and it's in the past, but a lot of, uh, a lot of other cultures and communities, they have long historical memories and they continue to see the impacts of historical injustices on how their lives and their communities uh, are carried out to date. And we have to be aware of that. Um, we need to get away from this tendency to either overemphasize or underemphasize religion when we're looking at uh, international politics. Um, it's not about, I'm reluctant to kind of say mainstreaming religion because we saw like gender mainstreaming has not really helped in terms of raising attention for gender issues in foreign policy or um, in, in world politics, but just normalizing religion as part of the fabric of of human life and society and not having it be such a taboo um, kind of topic or something that is like that anyone who says we need to engage with religion has some kind of religious agenda like it's just it's a fact it's a part of human it's part of human life it's part of our existence it's part of our societies we just need to understand how it works and what happens with it and with the actors involved with it in relation to the different issues that we're interested in. Religious actors are hugely diverse, or rather I should say actors who identify as religious are incredibly diverse. They're not, there's a tendency to think of them as being very conservative um, and traditional, but you will find every position across the political spectrum amongst religious actors. And sometimes you will find people from across different religious traditions have more in common with one another than actors who or organizations who supposedly come from within the same religious tradition. Um, and that's particularly true on issues like gender equality, the rights of LGBTQI community, uh, climate change. Um, and then the other the, the final kind of recommendation that uh, that the book has is that we have to remember um, that in some contexts, religious actors carry more influence and more legitimacy than governments or state authorities. And this is another reason why we need to normalize just engaging with, with religious actors, because sometimes engaging, if engaging with them is more important for achieving uh, broader outcomes for uh, equality and justice than engaging with government or state authorities. Absolutely. And it's the time of uh, kind of the 30 second TikTok videos when people don't go into nuances of things, yeah. especially very important these days. 
this the level of diligence in understanding how things work and sensitivity to different cultural aspects and completely agree with that and and that concludes our discussion with professor Aaron Wilson on the topic of religion and world politics it was fascinating conversation and I want to thank you for sharing your insights and expertise on this extremely important and timely uh, topic please check the book religion and world politics connecting theory with practice that offers a new insights into the perspectives of the study of religion and its role in the international relations we hope that our listeners will be inspired to engage with your work and continue the conversation thank you again for joining us today and we hope to have you back on the show in the future bye bye thank you very much it's it's been a delight Thank you.